and can you grab the outlines? Uh, if anybody is interested in being the person who I email the outline to every week so that it can get printed up and handed out before service instead of forgotten and done during the first songs of service, uh, please let me know after church. I am uh, not a well-organized individual, uh, for which I apologize. And she'll be back in a second. I'll let you know. Raise your hand, and she'll give you an outline. All right. Who needs an outline for the sermon? Would like to take notes, maybe. Uh, somebody could easily also give out pencils. Joshua, thank you. I saw him getting up to do it, and I was like, oh, look, Joshua, give out pencils. He was going to children's church. Oh, let's uh, pray, and uh, we will kind of get in the right place, the right mindset, the right heart set for the message this morning. Uh, and Jess can delete my first three Philippian slides for me while we're praying. I'm not going to use them. That I'll just go over them real fast. But uh, Heavenly Father. Uh, I pray that you would be with me this morning. Help me to um, help me to be focused on your word. Help me to share your gospel. Help me to to be um, a conduit of the Spirit, uh, not not of my own will, not of my own opinion. Uh, Lord God, you know my heart and my different struggles with the message this week, and I I pray that you would navigate uh, what to say and what not to say. Uh, for me and and Lord God, when I err, uh, which I certainly will, I pray that you would um, speak despite me. Be with the folks who are here today. Touch their hearts. Um, make the ground, the soil, make it fertile. Make it um, broken for you, Lord. Uh, help us to know your heart and know you more. Help us to be dependent on you, like like the crops in the fields out here are dependent on the rain in the summer. Um, and the sun um, every day. Uh, I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Did you wipe those out for me? Can I start it back up? All right. Uh, I am going to confess that I uh, had a couple of back and forths with myself about where to go with this, uh, or exactly how to explain it. And so let's hope that I don't say anything too offensive. Um, I, uh, I have asthma. Uh, I know nuts to your asthma. Are. I have had it. I, I, uh, have had it since I was a kid. Um, it was one of the excuses I used for being fat and lazy. Um, but as I've gotten older, uh, it is just an enormous inconvenience. Uh, it doesn't happen very often and I rarely have a serious problem, but it does happen. And so I've discovered there are sort of levels of need. Because there are times, like in the morning, if I go out running this time of year, right, I'll go out and run my few miles, like real slow. It's more of an ambling at my age. But I'll get home, and out of breath, in the very cold weather, I will walk into the house, and that warm air will hit my lungs, and everything clenches. And um, generally, I can drink a really hot cup of coffee, and step in the shower, and between the hot coffee, the stimulant, and the heat, the steam coming off the coffee, and then the hot shower, it sort of settles it down pretty quick. 
Okay. Now, when the pandemic first started, my wife and I started using, my wife, uh, I picked these up and my wife started encouraging me to use these. You know what they are? This is canned oxygen. Spaceballs, the canned oxygen. Um, it is, it, it's a, it is, it is literally just a can of oxygen. And so there were days when I would run and the coffee and the steam wouldn't do it. And so I would take a nice deep breath of pure oxygen and it helped. You see, uh, if, for those of you who will not be watching the football game this afternoon, which is most of us, uh, the players actually sit on the uh, sidelines and they breathe in from an oxygen tank, like pure oxygen, to kind of invigorate themselves. And it does work. And it has helped a little bit. Um, it is not my, it, this is really low level of dealing. Everybody with me still? Um, I have one of these. Y'all know what this is? It is an inhaler. I have used it maybe three times in the last three years. I do not need it often. Uh, I know one time I needed it, uh, and I couldn't find it. Titus set fire to our house over Christmas. And uh, I, I went upstairs, and it was full of smoke, and I went into his room. I couldn't see anything except the fire itself and smoke. And I got a, a three or four good lungfuls of, of crap. And I was hacking and coughing, and I could not for the life of me find it. But my lungs, like, clenched. You know what I'm talking about? Um, I, I think I went into the house next door, into the basement, uh, before it was torn down. And there was a lot of mildew. And I, I couldn't breathe right for a few days, and I had to use it a few times. And generally, if I go around harvest, which is why I don't help very much, why I don't shovel out bins, it, it throws me off for three or four days. But this is sort of, for me, this is like DEFCON 1 or DEFCON 2. I have pills I have never had to take that I can take if it gets so bad that I'm in trouble. Uh, I'm going to pick on for a second Carol. I, Caro, I talked to her beforehand, but Caro has a bag that she carries around that pumps oxygen for her. And she cannot wear it for lengths of time, but generally she has to go back to it, right? Uh, Frances, every time I talk to her, she'll tell me about her oxygen and her breathing treatments and all these varying levels. And, like, if you get past that point, right, because that's more serious, we all agree, that is a I need oxygen point. Um, I have health issue point. Like, uh, anybody know what this is? It is an iron lung, which Larry recognized because he's old enough to remember when these were a thing. There is, I read this morning, there is one person in the United States left alive who was placed on an iron lung during the polio epidemic. And he has never come out of it. Um, because he just doesn't have the muscle control. And so what it does is it expands and contracts and opens his chest and closes it so he can breathe. And then I think there's another level after that we're hearing a lot about. Right now with the machine they put you on, what's it called? A ventilator. And that's serious. Um, yeah, that is serious. And, like, at that point in time, things are sort of at the top level of, like, we need to be worried. Now, we're going to be talking about this idea of a ventilator, this idea of breathing quite a bit today. And we're going to be talking in relation to... Uh, Acts 16, this 
this idea of a respirator, but we're going to turn it on its head, okay? Because generally, the less healthy you are, the less healthy you are, the more likely you are to need a ventilator, right? Like between, in the grand scale, the less healthy, the worse off you are, the closer you get to that ventilator machine, right? And, and like that is, a, that is a chasm. And ventilator is not a fun thing, I understand. Steve? Wouldn't, re- wouldn't recommend it? Oh, you didn't get the ventilator? Oh. Wow. Good job. I, <laughs> no, that's right. You were on oxygen. That's right. You never got the ventilator. Um, the closer you get to the ventilator, like the less physically healthy you are. Um, in terms of our analogy, we're going to be putting this on its head. And specifically, what I'm going to talk about is this idea that dependence on Jesus is the source of everything for us. The more I learn to step away from my own systems and rely on Christ, the more I derive. The more I allow myself to die, I must decrease that he might increase, as John said, right? The more I am spiritually healthy and the more I die to my old self. Everybody with me still? So we're going to put this on, the, on its head. Like, we're going to talk about it. I'm going to come back to it over and over again. But that dependence on Jesus, that inhaling of Christ, that consuming of Christ is the source of everything in the Christian's life. It is the source of our joy, of our success, of our ability to persevere, of every victory we win. It all comes from Jesus, or it's not what God intended. Ooh, that's an ugly scary thing to say, right? But it is the truth. So we will dig into this. So Acts 16, this is the last verse of where we left off last week. Um, Paul has just, uh, Paul has just cast a demon out of this little slave girl. He was brought to court. He was illegally tried. He was beaten with rods. And then we ended that verse with having received this order. He put them into the inner prison, meaning the jailkeeper, and fastened their feet in the stocks. And we talked about this. The stocks were a torture device, a very passive torture device. You would lock them up in it and you didn't have to put the effort in to torture them. It did the work for you. There's an infomercial now. Um, and so their feet are in these stocks in an awkward position. They would generally spread you out or put you in a weird place so that you could not be physically comfortable. That was the point. And by sitting in one position that is awkward for hours and hours and hours, sometimes days and days and days, you became more and more uncomfortable and you began to have muscle cramps and, and spasms. And it was kind of awful. The ancients were really, really good at being nasty to each other. Right? So Paul is there. Mind you, this was illegal. He is in this dungeon. This inner prison is the dungeon. It's sort of the center, low, no light, nasty, gross. It is not the Marriott um, or the Hilton. I don't know. Um, it, It is the nastiest spot. But, like, Paul shouldn't be there because he and Silas are Roman citizens. And so, like, the court has committed a crime. They have overtly wronged him, and Paul didn't say anything about it, right? And we'll get into that in a little bit uh, to make John happy. Um, So they are there. They're in prison. They've been beaten. They're probably open sores all over their back. They're probably bleeding. They are in uncomfortable positions. They're physically hurting from, like, having to sit in this position. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying 
and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to him. First off, did they have much choice? Right? This is every parent in the room is saying, yeah, I know when my kid's in bed singing. I know when my kid is getting up at 2 in the morning to get water. But I suspect that they were doing it because it was weird. Because these guys are bleeding they are flayed. Their skin has been torn. They're bruised. They're, like, they're literally suffering where they're sitting, and they're praying, and they're singing. You guys usually sing when you're hurting? Is it farthest from your mind? Do you sing when you're angry? Do you sing when you're bitter? Right? Well, TJ does, but he was making a face, acknowledging that he does. Like, but these guys, they were responding to all of this misery, to the injustice of it, to the pain, to the, like, actually the threat to their ministry. Because, like, these guys have planted a church here, right? And the question of what happens now. This is not but a few years after James um, was killed, right? Well, I mean, not, yeah, James, not James the brother of Jesus, James the uh, brother John. Um, like, like it is a real possibility that they're going to get killed over this and everything is being threatened and they are singing and praying. Um, the idea behind this and the idea I want to draw out, and it's all going to come back to this idea that dependence on Jesus is the source of all our joy. Paul and Silas, in this moment, they lean on the relationship with Jesus while they're struggling. It is the source of their joy. So they are in a miserable spot, and what are they doing? They're praising God, and they're talking to him. Holy what? You know, they're going to God and saying, you know what, God? This is hard, but I, I trust you. I know you're in charge. They are, and I don't know what they were praying or singing, and so I'm just filling in the blanks here, right? Jesus, you suffered this for me. Thank you for the opportunity to suffer for you. That's a Paul thing to say, right? Jesus, I trust you. Thanks for this opportunity to trust you. One way or the other, they're in a spot where they would naturally struggle, where they would naturally doubt, where they would naturally worry. And instead of griping, instead of grumbling, ex- instead of demanding their rights, instead of any of that stuff they are, they're breathing deep from Jesus. Wow. This is the opposite of where we live today, isn't it? We want to protest. We want to be angry. We want to complain on the Internet. We want to yell at stupid people who are big jerks. We want to maybe shoot some folks. Whatever it is, like we want to respond and lash out. And these guys are like, man, this is good. We are in the spot that Jesus wants us to be. We're doing the work he wants us to do. This is good. And they're breathing it in. This is not them. It is Jesus. And in our hardest, most miserable, most difficult moments as believers, we're called to come back to Jesus over and over and over again and just consume him. Fill ourselves up with him. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. I'm reading the whole verse now. I'm sorry, I cut it off halfway through because I wanted to make that point. and the other prisoners were listening to him, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So they're praying, they're singing, and suddenly there's a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So quick run through here. The Great Escape, part three, if you're following the story. This is the third prison break 
that has happened in relation to the apostles or the disciples or, or the early church. Uh, the third time this has happened, and in this instance, it's an earthquake. The doors to these prisons were typically held shut by bars, and the shaking probably flipped the bars up and the doors opened. And the chains were probably attached to the walls, and having shaken, you know, maybe the, there's, like, there's all kinds of discussion as to what might have happened, like cracks in the building and the chains come free or whatever. Like, but all of a sudden, every single one of them is free. The whole crowd, Paul, Silas, and all the other criminals around them, all of them free. Um, I'm going to go back and say this again. This escape is not them. It is a product of their reliance on Jesus, right? They didn't do anything. Paul, in fact, heck, Peter in our last prison escape, how did Peter escape? The angel came in and kicked him a few times to wake him up and then dragged him by his coat out the door, <laughs> Like, it was Keystone Cops moment. Like, there was nothing impressive about this. And the same with Paul and Silas. Only for Paul and Silas, they are now free and they don't leave. When the jailer awoke and saw that the prison door was open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now, let me make this clear. This is not an unusual response because a jailer was taking responsibility for everyone in the prison and he would be punished in the manner of the prisoners if they escaped. So if a death row guy escapes, they're killing you. If somebody who is slated to be whipped publicly the next day and he gets out, they're whipping you publicly. Like it was a pretty like good incentive system to keep folks from escaping. So he sees that the prison doors are all open. He says, oh my gosh, tomorrow is going to be bad. And he says, well, that's it. I'm out. You know, he pulls his sword, goes to kill himself. Um, supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Mind you, not only did Paul and Silas not leave, nobody left. Weird, isn't it? I think, again, this is a Holy Spirit moment. There's another Holy Spirit moment that is not obvious. I don't recall reading that the jailer was told to put them in stocks. He was like, there's no specific, hey, go torture these guys, right? What did he do? He did it because he wanted to. Think about it a second. Like, and if I was in Paul's spot, I would be pretty resentful. They didn't tell you to put me in the dungeon. They didn't tell you to, like, torture me. They didn't tell you to do this stuff. And Paul's response is to save his life. He didn't run out, and he saved the man's life. And the jailer called for light. And rushed in and trembled with fear. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Now, um, some folks have read this as a sign of worship. I don't think that's accurate. Um, I think he is demonstrating his fealty or what he owes to him because Paul has literally just saved the man's life. In no way can I overstate that. And in that culture, this would be like an honor thing. Holy what? You save me. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, there are some folks that have argued that this is an indication, hey, I didn't die, like, how do I save myself from this potential tragedy? But he's already been saved physically. Um, he has probably heard them preach at some point. He's probably aware of their message. And he asked, what do I need to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So the success, like they basically convert a guy who is almost certainly a retired Roman soldier, 
was probably a pretty tough guy, was probably a pretty practical guy. Um, They converted him and his household. And how did they do it? Well, they didn't. Who did it? The Spirit did it. The same Spirit that had them singing when they were suffering, right? They took that deep breath. The same Spirit that freed them from prison. Again, they're dependent on Him. That same Spirit brought this man to life because He touched his heart through this action, through Paul's response, through everything. And the Spirit converted him. The victory that they experienced is the Holy Spirit moving, which is amazing. Acts 16, we're at 32 to 34. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him, to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he baptized, and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. There's kind of a cool thing there. They, he washed them, they washed him. Right? So he tends to their wounds, he takes care of them after he and his family and, and he and his family are baptized. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. So they went from being prisoners into the dungeon to being essentially family, to being honored guests, to being brothers in Christ. Like that is a, oh my goodness. Because they were awesome? No. Because the Holy Spirit did the work for them, right? The Holy Spirit filled them. The Holy Spirit gave them the words. The Holy Spirit opened the doors. And he opened the doors to this man's heart. It was, it was Christ that did the work. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have said to let you go therefore come out now and go in peace but love this paul said to them they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are roman citizens and they have thrown us into prison and do they now throw us out secretly no let them come themselves and take us out now to give a little context having Beaten and jailed Roman citizens, these magistrates have put themselves in a position where um, they could lose the colony status to the city. Like, they would lose, like, rights and privileges under Roman law. Like, like they have, this is about as big a mistake as you can, as you can make. They could lose their license over it. They could, they could wreck their position. They could wreck their lives. They could, to some degree, damage the city because... They jumped and didn't think. Paul didn't say anything. Now, uh, it's possible Paul did not announce, hey, I'm a Roman citizen because it was chaos, right? I don't buy that because I think he could have said it at any time. He could have planned it. Oh, well, wait until they're done and then I'm going to tell them what they did and I'll have one up. That is a strong possibility, right? Um, It is also possible the Spirit prompted him to just be quiet, But he's gone from a position where they have punished him, they've beaten him, they've tied him up, thrown him in a jail cell to having the upper hand. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they go from being thrown in jail to the magistrates humiliating themselves and apologizing and walking them out the door. Right? Night and day. 
Part of what Paul has accomplished here, by the way, is Paul has created a buffer zone for the local church. Think about it a second. Paul has a big chip. Paul has a big stick. And Paul does not use it. And by having received this punishment from him, by having received this abuse, by having received this humiliation, he stands between the magistrates and the church. Which, by the way, is a great image of Jesus. Right? Where the judge stands before us and we're guilty of our sins. And Christ stands between us having been punished for our sins despite being innocent. Having been crucified. Having been been humiliated and he gets punished for our sins he gets punished for our wrongdoing and we the church we his followers are saved and here we are right um they took them out and asked them to leave the city and paul did leave but he didn't leave right away he took advantage of the opportunity so they went out of the prison and visited lydia (laughs) and when they had seen the brothers they encouraged them and departed so they hung out a while why because they could right Paul did not, did not, did not use this chip foolishly. Um, he didn't use his rights foolishly. He did not use his opportunity or his privilege foolishly. He used it wisely. He used the upper hand and his own rights to care for the church, not to serve himself. This is a natural outflowing of our dependence on Christ. Like, the more... We lean on Christ. The more we're filled with him instead of our own breathing, the more we are relying on Christ to breathe for us, to fill us, to bring us life, the more we're in that resurrection thing, that new life, old Adam, new man kind of thing, the more we're in that, the more we naturally grow spiritually. And the more we act holy, the more we act righteous, the more we act selfless. Why is that? Because by nature, I will be selfish. I am great at it. I, man, if there were Olympic selfish things, like, I would kill. I probably wouldn't go to the Olympics. Um, But in Christ, we step away from that, and the new man takes hold. And the Holy Spirit begins to do the living for us. I mean, you stop breathing, you got, what, five minutes? Seven on the long end? And that's it. When Christ breathes for us, old Eric dies. And the more I rely on him, the more I breathe him in all the time, the more I am changed, the more I am made new. Um, I think this is what Paul is talking about. Uh, Actually, I think it's, we'll get to it in a second. All right, so my main idea, or uh, big ideas, uh, we have kind of worked through those, are important concepts. What are the ideas behind, the concepts behind the ideas? Because having worked through, we picked out the important bits of the text, and then we look for the principles that are sitting there. The first off is the dependence and connection to Jesus are the central point around which we as believers are to organize our lives. Paul and Silas worship because they're organizing themselves in chaos around Jesus. He is the center point. Um, He is the thing that we point toward, the thing that we gravitate to. When I make decisions in my personal life, when I make decisions with my finances, ideally, when I make decisions with my children, when I make decisions about my life or my career or anything else, the first question I am supposed to ask is, 
Jesus, what do you want me to do? What do you want from me? What's the goal? Or I might ask, what is Jesus calling me to do today? Or what are the things that are in front of me that are my job to do? What is the gospel in my life right now? If I had a job at a Kentucky Fried Chicken and I started serving uh, Chick-fil-A, I would undoubtedly get fired, right? The customers would be happy. I would get fired because they don't pay me to do that. That is not my mission. It is not my job. My mission is to do KFC. And the world will look at you and assume your mission. And they will tell you your mission. Be happy. Make money. Beat those lousy so-and-sos. You know, all of these things that they tell you is your calling and your job. And in reality, your calling and your job is Christ. And so to some degree, we as believers are going to struggle as we organize ourselves around Jesus. As we say, that may be your mission. Your mission may be KFC. My vision, my mission is Chick-fil-A. My mission is Jesus. Nothing? (laughs) So that's the first concept. Like, we are to organize around Christ. Our rights exist to serve Jesus. Our freedom exists to serve Jesus. Our finances, our, our children, our everything exists to serve Jesus. And it becomes an umbrella over everything else. Does that mean I shouldn't love my wife? No, it does not mean that because Jesus says, love your, or Paul tells us, love your wife like Christ loved the church. And so I'm supposed to organize around Jesus in relation to my wife, um, in relation to everything. I organize around Christ. I breathe him in, kill off the old Eric, and become different. So we organize around it because it is the nature of our identity. We are alive in Christ. Now let me explain this. Um, The other day, my daughter was trying to do her homework, and she had a taco. A pulled pork taco. I made the most amazing pulled pork the other day. I made it into tacos as leftovers, and it was fantastic. TJ, don't make faces at me. It was better than yours. I've had it. Um, My daughter got up and walked away from the table and stayed away from the table for approximately 20 minutes with her taco sitting there. What do you think happened? The dog came along and ate it. Why? Because that's what dogs do. They don't pretend to be something they're not. They know what they do. They know if it is there and it looks good, they're going to eat it, right? There's a cat in my yard. My dog is going to bark at it. That's what he does. He's a dog. That is his identity. We as believers, we as followers of Jesus are to organize ourselves around that identity. We are to be alive in Christ, not on our own. Not on our own. And it's so tempting, right? I know Jesus says I should do this, but I've already turned the other cheek, and they hit that one, so now on the third, I can start punching, right? Well, that's the spirit of what he's talking about. That's I mean, it is what it is, right? Um, We're called to organize around that first, which is what Paul does in this setting. Our love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, uh, and self-control. I think I missed one in there. Thankfulness. Thank you. Uh, They grow out of that relationship with Jesus. I do not feel joy naturally. I feel joy when I'm in relationship with Christ. 
I don't love things naturally. I love through Christ in me. I am not patient by any stretch of the imagination, right? I think gentleness was supposed to be in there too, and I left that out. And I will tell you, I'm not gentle apart from Christ. The more I am in Christ, the more I breathe him in, the more he becomes like ingrained into my cells, the more I consume him like we do with communion, like I consume his word and his identity, the more I become like Christ, the more these things grow out of it. So how do we do that? Well, first off, we have to daily be in communion with him, um, like several times a day. Well, what does that mean? Or I take the body and blood every... No, in communion means in relationship. It means you get up in the morning. When I worked at the children's home, we used to have a meeting. We would do three times a day. It was called changeover. One shift shows up. The other one gets ready to leave. When you did changeover, you sat down, and everybody talked about what happened in the last shift and what their goals are for the next shift. And in the middle of the day, you go to the next changeover, and you would gather up, and you would say, how did the goals go for the first half of the day? What are we going to do with the rest of it? Then in the evening, we would say, how did it go? What are we going to do better next time? What are we going to do different? What are we never going to do again? Um... You know, and we assess and we set goals for tomorrow. In the morning, we wake up and we go to Christ and we say, all right, here's my day. This is where I'm going. This is what I'm doing. What do you want from me? And we organize around Jesus. We identify his will. We identify our objectives in harmony with him. And we go out and we do it. We consume the word. We spend time breathing him in. We pray for his care and his guidance and his sustenance and perhaps in the middle of the day we stop and we look and we say how's it going lord what do you want from me lord what can i do better lord what uh, what's come along what's next what's next what's next and we breathe him in and we breathe him in and he fills us up and that oxygen that jesus spirit infiltrates our cells and we live him out and then in the evening we come back and we say all right god this is how it went Here's how I screwed up, or at least if you're me. Here's what I need tomorrow. The more we do it, the more we get into the habit of breathing Christ in, the closer to the iron lung and the respirator we get, the more like Christ we become the more we're able to overcome sin and experience joy and speak the truth and love and everything else, the more it happens because of our connection to Jesus. That is it. Like, to be filled with Christ means coming back to him over and over again. And it is hard. Right? Anybody ever sat out on Monday saying, I'm going to pray every morning, and by Tuesday you're like, well, maybe tomorrow, and by Wednesday you're like, maybe next week, and by Saturday you're like, well, I'm going to pray for... Uh, next week, we'll try it again. It's hard. Part of the reason fellowship is valuable, spending time with other people, is because they can keep you accountable. Because they become the voice of God to us. Um, I'm going to close out with a, the misquoted verse of the year, right? I rejoice greatly in the Lord. This is to Philippians. This is to the church we're talking about. The church he has just gotten chased out of town after planting. The jailer and Lydia and probably the little slave girl and everyone else. He is writing them a letter and he finishes the letter because they've been trying to send him support and take care of him. And he says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned but had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need. For I have learned to be content 
whatever the circumstances. Like when I sit in a jail cell in stocks, right? How does he do it? He breathes it in. He comes back to Jesus and he inhales Christ. That is how you become content. You say, I am suffering. Where is Jesus? What is this and Christ to me? What is God's will? What does he desire? Where is my joy? I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. All things through him that gives me strength. And a lot of times we read that and we see, I can do all things, period. But in reality, I can only do what Christ is in me to do. I am only able to live my life because I breathe my oxygen. I am only able to go from place to place and talk way too much because there is oxygen in my lungs. There is oxygen flowing through what is generously called my brain. And I'm only able to be spiritually alive because I inhale Christ. And every day I will get closer and closer and closer to the day that I take my last breath. And that is a scary idea until I realize that that is the moment I'll become sinless and perfect. Right? Because Christ did it for me and he's promised it to me. The more I rely on Christ, the less I rely on my own breathing, my own will, my own strength, and my own drive. The more perfect, the more Christ-like I become. I'm going to close with a prayer. This is from, I didn't send you one this morning, John, so here you go. Uh, This is from uh, Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers written by Puritans. Um, This is fullness. Let's, uh, Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, you have revealed to me myself as a mass of sin and yourself as the fullness of goodness with strength enough to care for me wisdom enough to guide me, mercy enough to quicken me, love enough to satisfy me. You have shown me that because you are mine, I can live by your life. Be strong in your strength, be guided by your wisdom, and so I can pitch my thoughts and hearts in you. This is the exchange of wonderful love, For me to have you for myself and for you to have me and to give me to yourself. There is in in you all fullness of the good I need and the fullness of all grace to draw me to yourself. Who else could ever have come? But having come, I must cleave to thee. I must join to you. I must be knit to you. Always seek you. There is none all good as you are. With thee I will live without other things, for you are God all-sufficient. And the glory, peace, rest, joy of the world is a creaturely perishing thing in comparison to you. Help me to know that he who hopes for nothing but you and for all things only for you hopes truly. And that I must place all my happiness in holiness. If I hope to be filled with all grace, convince me that I can have no peace at death. Nor hope that I should go to Christ unless I intend to do his will. 
and have his fullness while I live. My challenge for you today, my encouragement, is to go to bed tonight after breathing Christ in deeply, is to wake up tomorrow morning and breathe him in deeply, to carry him around next to you and breathe him in, to convince yourself to have the fullness of life in him. Amen. Have a good morning, folks.